0: Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Matthew's Gospel, and chapter 10, we'll read this morning, verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. In God's people, let's pray. Ask for the Lord's blessing, our heavenly Father. Once again, we're thankful that you speak to us. You teach us your ways. You don't hide things from us, but you speak the truth to us. And sometimes the truth we know hurts, or brings about because we are we still have remaining sin or are in our sins. causes great difficulty for us. And so comfort us in Christ. Pray that none would respond to Your Word today but by lashing out, but by receiving Your Word in faith. And so soften the hearts of all of us. Grant to Your servant the words to speak, that He would have the unction of the Holy Spirit you grant him the tongue of a ready writer, and that you would humble him before you, and that all of us would hear you speak your words in Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew chapter ten, verse twenty-one. These are God's words. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye unto another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Those are God's words. Christ has called His apostles to go out at the beginning of this chapter to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews. He had said at the end of chapter 9, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And He's been revealing to them uh, the truth about the preaching of the Gospel and what it means and the cost even. And so testifying the truth. So when you follow Christ in the truth, He promises there's trouble in that life. That there will be suffering and there will be persecution. There will be those who... As He promised the apostles, you'll be brought before the Jewish councils, the synagogues and whatnot, and you'll be brought before government officials, even the Gentiles and kings. And so Jesus warned them of what following Him would mean for their lives. And He said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And the, the Gospel will testify... As you preach that gospel, testify against the Jews and Gentiles who refuse to trust in Christ to save them from their sins. And that's okay. That's what his gospel is designed in part to do, to testify against. That's part of his eternal plan. It's his will. Because the message is not yours, in which... We want to see every person that we talk to about the gospel about uh, and testify to them the good news. We want every single one of them to believe and to receive the message uh, by faith. That's just not what happens. And that's what God and Jesus promises here. The rejection, when they reject the good news of the gospel, the rejection is a rejection of Jehovah in Christ, just as it always has been throughout the scriptures. The passage before us today reveals the potential cost of following Jesus Christ in the truth that you will know experientially. What is the cost for you to follow Christ? And have you considered that? And some of you know the cost. Some of you have counted the cost. And it has cost you. First point this morning. Hated for Christ. Hated for Christ. You see verse 21. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death. And the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. So brothers have uh, physical physical brothers, blood uh, by blood relation. Brothers have a natural love for one another some of you who are younger children you might say well that's not true but you know it's true even though right now you may not always get along right and some of you who are older now you look back you might not have always got along with your brother but if you're a Christian and and naturally generally speaking you uh, You love your brother, because it's your brother. When it comes down to it, you have a natural love, you have a natural affection for your brother. Uh, Some of you might not have relations with your brother anymore. They've been strained, but yet, what do you do? You think upon them more than perhaps other people. And the random, you know, random people in the world. Why? Because you have a natural affection for them. A natural pull to love them. And to care for them. And that can't be denied, even the the natural love of fathers for their children, or mothers for their children. That can't be denied. Every father loves their child. Every mother loves their child. But so to you children, you love your fathers, and you love your mothers. Because there is that natural affection, and natural love that you have. That is built into you. And the Lord Jesus Christ sets forth these family relationships as examples of normally, even in the world, normally strong relations. Consider the scriptures in Genesis 4. There was a natural love between the brothers, Cain and Abel, before the Lord had regard and respect unto Abel's offering, and Abel himself. Was there not a natural love between Jacob and Esau? Isaac for his sons, Jacob and Esau. Was there not a natural love and affections between Jacob and all of his sons? and his sons for him. And even all those sons for Joseph for a time. What about the relationships of David and his children? We often read about how horrible that those relationships were. But for those brothers and sisters and father to children, children to father, there was a, at a time natural love for each and the natural affection. And we could go on and on with examples throughout the scriptures, but in all those relationships that natural love and those affections that were present ultimately proved what? Insufficient. In each of the relationships that were mentioned, they proved insufficient. When Jehovah came with Cain and Abel and had respect for Abel and his offering, that natural love and their brotherly affections were not enough to keep Cain from murdering his brother. The ultimate hatred that can be had in the human heart is that hatred of the Lord. The ultimate hatred in the human heart of man is toward God. That's what Cain had in his heart. He hated God. But He couldn't see God, couldn't touch God. He could see his brother. He could see his brother was favored. And so he lashed out upon his brother. But the ultimate hatred in the heart of man is towards God. And so friends, we didn't realize today there would be no hatred between men and women and children if it were not for a hatred toward the Lord God. That hatred is there, found in the heart of man, even by nature in the fall of Adam and Eve, right? Since the fall in Genesis 3. Romans 8 teaches us about this, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. The great object of hatred in the natural human heart is God. Now that hatred might lay there hidden and inactive and undisturbed until the moment the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. And so it is with all peoples, not just those who naturally love in your family. You, you never notice uh, until the day the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. Or you stand upon the truth. When you stand upon the truth and your conviction of the truth, you have that conviction, the day the Lord is declared to be uh, as He really is. When that's shown forth, that He is who He is. And you're the an instrument, perhaps, of revealing that. Not some uh, figment of their imagination that they had it, but in His works or in His law, and in any way that He saves sinners in and through Christ alone, however they thought that He saved sinners uh, in and through Christ alone. But when the Lord is shown forth for who He really is, outside of those imaginations and figments uh, or creations of the mind which are idols, when the Lord is shown forth for who He really is according to His Word in His character, even how He saves sinners, uh in what way even from all eternity that He saves sinners. It is then that the natural hostility and enmity that is always there in the heart is somehow stirred up and kindled to by exposure to the truth of God. The most calm, collected, nice, seemingly loving folks in your family, outside of your family, doesn't matter, those nice, calm, Loving people in the world. And the gospel proclaimed unto them, what does it do? It sets them on fire. A fury of hatred fills their bowels in that moment that they hear the truth. A passionate hatred. And so that when the proclaiming the truth, it may it may seem to you very alarming, right? Here's this person, I've always known them, or... I've known them for a few minutes here. They've seemed pretty calm and, and uh, generally nice. And they're caring for their children as they're standing there. And because they love their children naturally. They were very pleasant. And, and then in a moment, as the truth is spoken, they've turned. And it is full anger and fury against you. And you're left to wonder, what became of that person in that moment? Or, as we're talking about a family member, what happened to that person? They were very pleasant before. Many are naturally pleasant until you disrupt their lives with the truth of God. Or with the truth. Plainly. Which is the truth of God. You might ask, aren't there people who love God... Without being changed by the Holy Spirit? You might ask that. In fact, you may even say in your own heart, I do love God, I don't hate the Lord. But friends, the the reason uh, men think they don't hate God or women don't think they hate God is because they don't think of God as He really is in accordance with the truth found in His Word. And so they could even be, these people might even be in the church. And they picture God in their minds as they would like Him to be. And not as He actually is. And so they have created, in their own imaginations, what we already talked about, an idol. A false representation of who their God is. Who's not actually the God of truth. And so then when Jehovah is revealed to them in the truth by the Scriptures, they respond with what passionate fury and hatred. And so when hearing the truth from the Word, and there comes from you a fury, a hatred against the God of the Word. This shows you you don't truly love God. Sometimes you see it in the church. Uh, you're preaching the Word, or you're, you're all hearing together, and there might come upon you a hatred for the preacher. Because he's preaching the truth. So we need to really be careful here. This shows that you had, if you don't, if you respond to God's word, and there's sometimes because of your sin. Your sin's been pointed out, and so you hate the minister for pointing it out. Or whoever brought the message, right? If you're on the street or whatever. But this shows that you don't truly love God. This shows you had not had your heart changed by His Holy Spirit perhaps. This is a continual thing. And then you're at enmity with God. How impossible it is for the natural person to accept that God has absolute rights over us. He's the king. And He has absolute rights. By nature we resist the truth and resent God being the one who has absolute and complete sovereignty over His rights, sovereign rights, over us in everything. We don't like that. We like being in control. Sometimes we find that in our marriages or when we have children and they interrupt our lives, uh, we might say, and we're no longer in control because we like being in control. The same thing and greater so with God. We're all his creatures. He's the creator. He's the king. The passage before us shows where this hatred can lead. And since the Lord is beyond the reach of this hatred, right, we can't physically reach out to God and grasp Him. And so He's beyond reach. And since men cannot reach God, and since the Lord Jesus has ascended up into heaven, He's no longer here on the earth, the enmity of man toward God finds its expression, right, it finds its expression in enmity toward the people of God. Revelation 12 calls them the remnant of the seed of the woman, in which the dragon, that Satan, is wroth, Very angry. In Micah chapter 7 it says, Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Same thing that the Lord is speaking about here. He's drawing from that passage in Micah chapter 7. He's not quoting it, but he's applying those words from the prophet Micah to the enmity that is aroused by the proclamation of the truth of God. In Micah, these words uh, were describing the level of dishonesty and deceit and disloyalty of the people of that time. And Jesus is applying that here uh, uh applying them here to the effects of testifying the good news of Jesus Christ. That the lack of natural affection and loyalty that can be brought about in an ungodly society can actually be activated and brought forth in the times of the truth being declared in Jesus Christ. So there are times, we know, there are times of moral decline of society or the church. And what you'll see in those times, what we have seen, friends, probably, is that trustworthiness diminishes or declines. And so there are so many people who, if you ask them, they don't know who they can trust. I think uh, Elder Main alluded to that in Sabbath school this morning, too. There's so many people, if you ask, they don't know who they can trust, even sometimes in their own families. They take the world as a whole. When we think of history, often the easiest illustration of this in history is the Nazis with the Jews, right? And friends and families came against each other to reveal who the Jews were. Friends turning in friends, family members sometimes turning in family members, neighbors turning against neighbors, trustworthiness was gone. And so it is, Jesus is saying here, when the truth is revealed from the Scriptures, those relationships of natural affections cannot necessarily be trusted. But the strongest bonds in relationships are found not in natural relations, but in gospel relations. Relations being part of the family of God, being in union with Jesus Christ. Those with natural relationships, when the truth is proclaimed, not even that will hold those relationships. But there will be betrayal. This can and does happen to the people of God. Think of the, the Muslims that turned to Christ in the Middle East and they're ostracized by their families, their friends, and often turned over to the government or whoever, uh, the Muslims, the other Muslims, men of the city or whoever, and they're put to death by their own family. They're turned over to this. This doesn't mean that Christians should avoid uh, having... Uh, with them that natural love and affection. Every single one of us here should have a natural love and affection for our family, that is our blood relations. We ought to pray for them, we ought to care for them, we ought to uh, proclaim to them the gospel and the truth. But what Jesus is showing here that, that He does require is realism. Realize what may and will happen when you proclaim that truth of His Word. Because the ultimate divide is not by the basis of blood relation. The ultimate divide is between the Christian and the non-Christian. but those, Between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. It's between those who are born of the Spirit and those who are not born of the Spirit. It's between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the divide. Not who's in your blood family and who is not. Because on the judgment day it will be that division. The division those who are born of God and those who are not, those who love God, those who don't, those who are believers, those who are not. The seed of the woman the seed of the serpent. Those, that's the division. And on the day of judgment will be brought to open view. The people of God will be together, glorified with Christ. Praise God. And those who know not the Lord and who are not with Him will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And so the bond between Christians will live eternally. The bond that Christians have in our day today will last forever. They will go beyond natural relations. Natural relations in which even by marriage, there is no marriage in heaven, right? There's no children in heaven. There's no parents in heaven. What lasts is the bond we have in union with Christ. And so let's not be caught off guard and don't assume, don't assume that natural affection will automatically secure the support and even the tolerance of unconverted family members. When we stand loyal to Jesus Christ, some of you I know in this church know this personally. A big one for us is often the keeping of the Sabbath, in which uh, tensions in natural family relations come to fruition and uh, show itself, show themselves. Because your extended family wants you to come and celebrate birthdays and Mother's Days and Father's Days and, and all these days, whatever the days are, created by men and they don't care at all about the Lord's Day. And keeping the Sabbath holy. And now even there are weddings and there are funerals on the Lord's Day. But the Lord's Day is not for these things. Weddings or funerals. All right, Let the dead bury their own dead. We have to come to Christ and follow Him. But the Lord's Day, as those, it's not for those things. And yet you have felt when your family says, well, your grandfather died. Funeral's on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, they'll say. And you're not going to go. And you felt the pull. The temptation? The pull? Do I remain faithful to Christ and keep His day holy? Or do I appease and compromise with my family? And friends, don't you know that when you appease and compromise with your family, number one, your family is never compromising. Never. No. They never compromise. Number two, you compromise and you give in to your natural relations because those you have made more important than your spiritual relations with Christ. And so when Jesus comes and He says, they would backstab you, right here, He says, they will backstab you in the moment. In a moment they'll do it. And you say, Jesus, it's only one day. And you backstabbed Jesus Christ no more. in a moment. No. More. No. And you, when you went to that, no. most of you, when you have done that, and you come and you talk to me about it, you have felt your conscience burdened, Outward. bound. You've gone against your own conscience, no. and you're grieved about it. No. And I have to hear you when I warned you, and warned you, and warned you. And Jesus is here warning you. Do not assume that the natural affection will automatically secure the support or even the tolerance of your family members when you stand loyal to Jesus Christ. When you went against Jesus and blasphemed, let's say, for example, the Lord's Day, you blasphemed His holy day... And some of you have felt that backstab before and you're being faithful to King Jesus and praise the Lord for that. Jesus is here warning the rest of you that this will happen when you stand upon the truth and when you testify the Gospel from the Scriptures. Do not kid yourselves. You must not assume that your devotion to Christ will be supported or even tolerated or even accommodated by those closest in natural blood relations to yourself, those having no interest, when they have no interest in the love of Christ. And the Savior we love. Friends, even, sadly this is true in the visible church, with those who profess Jesus as Christ, and as their Savior. Personally experienced, I have being maligned by my family, for preaching the mere gospel. And praying that the Lord would move us by his grace to be repentant of our sins. And seeking the Lord's forgiveness as if there's something wrong with us. And there is. Or for stating our God is a creator, and he did exactly what he said in his word. He created the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them out of nothing, by the word of his power in a space of six days, and all very good. And the closeness, friends, the bonds that we have in union with Christ, far outlast those ties of natural blood relations. Hated for Christ. Secondly, love for Christ. Love for Christ. Verse 21 again, it says, "...and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death." And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. None of us should be without natural affections for our family members in blood. Or even by marriage, right? All Christians should have those natural affections. If you do not, it is evidence of a hardened heart. But what is required, verse 22, for Christ's sake, for His name's sake, is that we must be ready to be despised by those whom we love dearly in natural bonds, and natural relationships. The Lord Jesus Christ requires us to be ready to be despised, for Christ's sake, by those who are close to us in natural relationships of blood by our family members. But for what reason? Should we be willing to be despised because of our own foolish or stupidity? The things that we do, right? The foolishness that we, or the folly we take part in. No. We know, going back to chapter 5, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not because we're stupid or foolish, but for righteousness' sake. Family loyalty is important, but it's limited. It's limited. Do you love Jesus Christ more than your husband? More than your wife? More than your father? More than your mother? More than your children? More than your brothers? More than your sisters? And if needed, will you side with Christ against them by standing for the truth? He's the Lord. He's the King of kings. We call Him Lord, but do we do what He says. Even though it may disturb relations near and dear to us, do we do what He says? When your family's planning a big Super Bowl party, right, tonight, do, during, of course, the same time as evening worship, on the Lord's Day, do you love Jesus more when He has called you to worship Him? Well, but it's the chiefs. And I love the Kansas City Chiefs. Do you love Jesus more than everything and everyone else? Do you love Jesus more? Friends, Jesus is the Lord of Lords. And so He must be Lord of over our entertainments and over our pleasures. Over everything that we love, He is to be Lord over our worship, our relationships, our lives. So keeping your family relationships your natural family relationships, is not absolute. As much as we all should desire to keep them and love our family by God's grace, natural relationships are not ultimate and absolute. But if you're a Christian, keeping your relationship and your love for the Lord Jesus is ultimate, and it must be absolute. Everything is done and believed and thought and felt for King Jesus. And so live peaceably with all men. That includes especially your family. An extended family. But that's not an absolute. It's not to be sought after at all costs. And yet often that's how we treat it backwards in our lives. We often treat, oh, I have to keep my natural family relationships at all costs. Even if it is to blaspheme the Lord by me going into a worship service where they're blaspheming Christ. No. Honoring Christ is an absolute. And if honoring Christ means being disapproved of, yelled at, dishonored by those close to us and natural ties in our families, Jesus says, then it must be that. There's a cost. It has to be that. Seek to be at peace with all in your family, but not at the expense of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Never at the cost of that. Love Christ as your Creator. Love Him as your King, and as your Savior, as your eternal, loving husband. And so love Him forever, always absolutely and supremely. Verse 22, it says again, And ye shall be hated of all men for My name's sake but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. If your love for Christ should exceed even that of natural relations, then our love for Christ should exceed all desire and approval of men, including those in your family. All men, verse 22, it says all men, and that all men is general there. And not every individual in the world, not fellow Christians, though it seems sadly fellow Christians fall into this at times, but all kinds of men from all sides of you. It's a general saying. Uh, you will be hated by men, and women, and children. You'll be hated by the rich and the poor, normal citizens, kings also, and rulers, and governors, all these different types of people you'll be hated by. Because there's all types of worldly unbelievers in the world who hate Christ. And so you'll be hated by them too. Because they will all be hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they do hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, hearing the truth of God from his word, and just as your natural relations will hate you from for this, who are not in Christ, so generally, all types of people who are at enmity with with Christ will be at enmity, hostility with you. And this is not confined to just the apostles. How many of the psalms which the Lord has seen fit to gather all together for His church, His bride, to sing in order to be shepherded by the good shepherd? And we sing there of those who form leagues together against His people. How many psalms are like that? We could probably think of many. Dozens. Dozens upon dozens. So many. Why? Because we'll experience this in our day. The same thing. Because we experience it all the time. The church always will experience these things when they are faithful in proclaiming the truth of the gospel to the world. Psalm 83 is an example. Uh, Listen to the different types of people. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom, the Ishmaelites of Moab and uh, Hagar, Hagarines, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asser, also is joined with them. They have hopen the children of Lot. Salem. Then you think of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth joined together against the Lord and His anointed. And that means also in application against us. Even in Isaiah... How unlikely of alliances we've seen there against God's people. Not only brother against brother in Israel, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Manasseh, Ephraim, but Israel against Judah, Judah against Judah, right? The king against those who believe. Even if we go to other places. The king versus the true prophets who preach His word. Israel joining with Syria. Doesn't make any logical sense for them to do that in the context of God's word and the truth. And yet there they are. There can be unlikely alliances against the people of God. I made mention of the one common one today. Um, Muslims and LGBTQ people joined together against the truth and yet makes no sense. Contrary. Against Christians because remember the chief antagonism is toward God himself. And that finds expression against his people. Satan's desire to destroy Christ and his church Christians Doesn't He sometimes surprise us? Doesn't He surprise us sometimes? Right? He's like a lion seeking God's people to devour by prowling around. And how do lions attack? They sneak up on their prey and they surprise them. Jesus is saying, He's saying, "Do do not be surprised when you're surprised by this. This is Satan's MO. Right? Mode of operation. Though it is under the providence of God, Satan comes and he attacks us through his hearers, through these hearers of God's word who have hardened hearts. You go into a situation, you call somebody to believe the gospel, to repent of their sins, to believe, and all that moment, all in one moment seemed everything calm and pleasant, and all of a sudden, now it's not calm. And now you're being attacked. Friends, God in His providence, is putting you through this for the good of the trial of your faith, praise God, to discipline you, to strengthen you, to keep you uh, trusting in King Jesus, even though Satan, he's trying to destroy you in that same thing. And the Lord's certainly working it for your good. First Peter 1, it says that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Christ loved His own when He was in the world to the end. He loved them, and He bore their sins, He bore their agony, bore the reproaches of men, bore the mockery of Herod's men, bore the disdain of Pilate, bore the maliciousness and jealousy of the chief priests. Jesus, our Savior, crucified and slain as He was born, as He bore the wrath of God against our sins for us sinners on the cross. He loved His people to the end. Should we then, who are His people, not love Him? Above all popularity and human approval and family approval. If we are our own, and there's no minister and no elders, no fellow Christians to see what we do or to voice their support for your following Christ, what's left? What do you do? Do you honor Christ when no one else is around to see you? Following Christ? Well, what's left? When all alone and everyone around you has no time for Christ, what happens then? Do you endure as you look unto Him who is invisible and reigns on the throne? We Will will we honor Christ and love Christ still because our souls are settled in faith and in love, which is in Christ Jesus? My heart, is is it fixed in trusting the Lord? Fellowship with the saints is a great blessing, but... When we're all alone, do we still have fellowship with Christ? Do we still stand for His truth? Because there is a bond between our souls and Christ, our Savior and Lord. And this love we are to have for Christ and in Christ. How do we cultivate this love? By communing with Him in His Word by going unto him in prayer, by fellowship as we prayed with the saints as we encourage one another in our conversation to keep looking to Christ. Not a conversation about the game, about this or that though that may happen, but especially when we've gathered together for worshiping and encouraging each other to look to Christ, to do that. To look to our Savior and Lord who loves us. But then friends, this is this love unlike that familial blood-relation love, natural love. This love is enduring. No, that love is not. As it says at the end of verse 22, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Perseverance is a mark of true grace. Perseverance in the faith is an evidence that you have been truly born... Of the Holy Spirit. Having a real saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The parable of the sower, right? Matthew 13. The seed that falls on the stony places of those who hear the word of Christ, the gospel, the truth of the word, and with joy they receive it. And yet, there's no good root in Christ. And it says, for when tribulation and persecution ariseth because of the word... By and by he is offended. That is, you, the seed, is offended when there's persecution and tribulation. Well, that's the passage before us. He's warning the same thing. The difference was there from the start. It's not saying that there are those who are born of the Spirit and... Persevere, and there are also those who are born of the Spirit and don't persevere. He's not saying that at all. It doesn't say that, and that contradicts the scriptures entirely. But it's saying in the visible outward church, uh, those who profess to be the Lord, those who profess outwardly faith, when they come up here and they profess faith right uh, in Christ, and yet when persecution and suffering arises, being hated of all men, even of your family, hated for the sake of Jesus Christ, those who are truly. Born of the Spirit are those, end of verse 22, there are those who endure to the end. Those are the ones who are saved. And those are the ones who from the very beginning of their faith, they were born of the Holy Spirit. They persevere. If you have true faith, friends, the Lord is promising you here, that He will preserve you. And He'll grant you the grace to persevere, to endure even through sufferings and trials as He did, even when ministering the Gospel to those of the world and you're attacked and you're mocked. In Philippians 1 it says, be confident of this very thing that He, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, those who are justified, those are also glorified. Isn't a great promise we hear in the benediction from Jude? Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory, with exceeding joy. Not just falling down or falling into sin here or there, but our God is completely and utterly able, powerful strength. He is a strength, capable, and does... He isn't just able to do it. He does keep His people from falling. From utterly falling away from Him. And so He's able, and isn't He? Those who believe you can be born again, a true Christian, and then be lost in the end, they either believe what? They either believe that He is not able, or that He is able, but He doesn't do it right going along with what Jude says in verse 25 in the benediction they believe he isn't able or that he is able but doesn't do it but he's God he's able we know that he of course is able and so if it's the latter option he's able and doesn't do it what then is there what hope at all can you have in any one of His promises, because He promised right there in Jude that He will do it. And now we say, no, He can't. No, well, there's no hope then in any of His promises. And that, those options are horrific. They're an atrocity. No, Christian, He's able, and He will do it. He will do it. That's our God, the God of His Word, the God of truth. 1 Peter 1 again we read the second part of this that I'm reading now. Who are kept, they're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, or in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Who having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what's the end of the trial of the faith for the people of God? It will be for their purifying, and it will be unto the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What a promise we have in 1 Peter there. And in Jude, what a God we have. Your love for Christ, friends, therefore must be enduring to the end. Now, right now, you might not feel the strength to persevere, Christian. You're under some adverse circumstances. You've gone through the ringer, we might say. Right? People say that. You're really struggling. But just because you feel like you don't have the strength does not mean that you cannot persevere, Christian. You're under those struggles, but that does not mean that the Lord cannot give grace to help in the perfect time of need. And so that if our afflictions for the gospel's sake should uh, rapidly increase, the Lord will give grace for that. His grace is sufficient. And if He's given you the grace to persevere thus far, that gives you hope that He's going to Continue that grace to you, to persevere and preserve you unto the end. Even if great trials come upon you. Even if you're persecuted and you go through many tribulations and sufferings. Yes, of course He can, and He will. He will. He doesn't always give the strength and grace before the need. You might say, well, when that need arises, I don't feel like I'm going to be strong enough to endure persecution or suffering like we think of when we think of persecution and suffering. But He doesn't give the strength until the time that you need it. In the time of the need, He does. And oh, you say, well, I'm a weak Christian. I'm a feeble Christian. Praise God, you're a Christian. Weak or strong, it doesn't matter. The Lord's grace is sufficient for you, He says. And He supplies it perfectly to preserve you to the end. You're a weak and feeble Christian. At least you're not an apostate. At least you're not an unbeliever. Psalm 84. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed, for a day and thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a son and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in Thee. I always love to think about Psalm 84 because it's talking about just to be a doorkeeper on the outside looking in. There's all these angelic beings, and then uh, towards the towards the throne. You have the seraphim, cherubim, all these. And then you have those who are sitting at God's right hand and in, in, in union with Jesus Christ. They're right there. God's people are right there. So you're never going to be a doorkeeper. You're never going to be on the outside. You're going to be right there next to your husband, Jesus Christ, with Him. And so if you're a weak Christian, you're going to be right there with Him. if you're a strong Christian, the same. Many who suffered for the sake of the gospel and the word, we find them. But even throughout church history, friends, no one felt up to suffering. Or they never felt up to being persecuted for the sake of the name of Jesus. No one goes into it wanting to be persecuted. If you go into this wanting to be persecuted and suffer, then there's something wrong with you. Nobody wants that. Jesus didn't want it. I'd take this cup from me, but I submit to you, God, not my will, but your will be done. And yet when the time came for the Lord, what did he do? He supplied the grace necessary for each one and preserved them to endure to the end. The same God who caused them by His grace to persevere in lighter times gave them the grace to persevere in the times of great trouble. Bye. And so take courage, friends. You think of the book of Acts and all the, Jew, the those Jews who are believing, they're being kicked out of their homes by who? Their family. Their friends, their neighbors, because they're believing the gospel. Take courage. A love for Christ is not without its blessings. The Lord promises provision for you by His grace. Verse 23. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The Lord does not call you to seek out suffering, He does not call you to seek out persecution when it's when it's not necessary you should go as we we're just referring to you don't seek out the persecution to seek persecution is foolish and is prideful but to put yourself in situations of known suffering and persecution unnecessarily or to continue under persecution that has come when the word has already been proclaimed when you have a way out that is self-seeking He says here, but when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. Don't stand under the persecution. The apostles were not required to stay in a city and to continue preaching and preaching while continuously being persecuted. There's always somewhere else to testify the good news. I think of our covenant or forefathers, if you know your history. They were persecuted, they suffered, they were put to death. They were so willing to suffer and die for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, for King Jesus, but they didn't run to meet death and persecution. They were seeking to avoid it, in some sense. They took responsible precautions while worshiping and proclaiming the gospel. Ultimately, many did die. Many suffered for Christ's sake, but they didn't run to meet death. They didn't find it compromised when they sought to avoid being persecuted while they moved around and ministered the gospel. The Jews in Jerusalem who are being persecuted in the book of Acts, when they left Jerusalem, they were not cowards. They were not breaking God's commandment. They continue to seek to minister the gospel. And sometimes there are for ministers of the gospel only antagonism to the word proclaim. But friends, it is just it may just be wise to move on and find a more receptive field of labor for that minister. And ministers have done so and found great blessing and fruit produced by God. But what we have here in the last verse is a hint at the promise of God. There's always another place for the gospel. There's always another place for the gospel. There's always another opportunity to proclaim it. And you can have confidence that not all hearers will respond with such hatred. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because there's going to be, wherever you go, there's going to be, if you go to the next city, the next town... Next place, there's going to be someone who's going to receive it. There are many hearts, when they hear the Word of God, their hearts are hardened and they become angry and they're filled with hatred towards God and therefore towards you, the Christian. But there are many when also when you proclaim the good news that their hearts are softened. And they're receptive to the word. And that's why he commands here, flee ye into another city. And so there's hope that the elect are out there, right? We don't know who they are. But there will be those who receive the word with gladness. And so we have that promise. Then the last phrase in verse 23 is is a rather difficult phrase. It makes no sense because we often think we just look at face value without doing any thought through this. Seems to be talking about the second coming of Christ, maybe it's talking about seventy AD when Jesus comes in judgment. But it makes no sense if the view is merely the second coming of Christ or seventy AD, for then how will we understand ye shall not have gone in gone over the cities of Israel? That doesn't make any sense. This last phrase is speaking not just to the apostles, but for all gospel ministers in all generations until the return of Christ. And Jesus is saying as though you may have to flee from one place to another, there will always be an opportunity to preach the gospel. There will always be an opportunity to preach the gospel. Friends, there will always be places, that's the promise here, there will always be places where men and women and children will be willing to listen to the preaching of the truth of God found in the gospel. There will always be hearers of the truth, an opportunity to preach. There will be, there will not ever be a situation where every single door and opportunity to share the gospel is closed. To you. Now, the apostles were laboring in Israel, which is why the reference to the cities of Israel here, but for all ministers of, the, of Christ, the, the, this applies outside of literal physical Israel. There will always be places, no matter where you are in Israel, outside of Israel, in all the world, to go to the next town and preach the word. The good news. Even if you have to flee from persecution from one place, you flee to another, there will be an opportunity there. Or maybe the next place. But there will always be another place. The church will never be destroyed. That's also a promise here. The church will never be destroyed. So the testimony of the church will never be destroyed. The gospel always is going to be proclaimed in the earth. Until Christ comes again. So friends, today knowing the gospel triumphs in Christ... Knowing the church, the bride of Christ, is victorious in Christ and can never be destroyed. There's no greater thing then to, than to love Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church. And even to be hated for his sake. For better to be on the side of the king of kings and victorious than basking in the pleasures of this world and be cast into the lake of fire where the fire is not quenched in the worm does not die. Do you love Jesus Christ? And here he's asking the question, how much do you love me? Kind of the same question he asked Peter when he called him to feed his lambs. How much do you love me? Do you love him more than natural bonds and relations, family? Love Him in the face of persecution? Do you love Him with perseverance, trusting in His grace? Friends, you're called again to come to Christ. Maybe you see in your life, I have not loved Him as I should have loved Him. I've been weak and i failed. But I love Him. And so love Him. And believe on Him. And keep believing on Him. You must love Christ for if you're, you're not one who loves Christ for you he as He is shown Himself in His Word, then you're at enmity with Christ. You're hostile towards Him. You hate Him. And you're the loser. You're not victorious. The victorious ones are in Christ. They believe on Him. And so, there's only one option then. Come to Christ and be victorious in Him and believe on Him. Call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word that you teach us your ways, even when it seems hard. Father, we pray that we would not be the ones who are, who hate you, but that we would love you. We would love you in all these ways, that we would love your promises and trust in them. And Father, as you say, it is true of all who have faith in Christ. In that way, Father, though we don't desire it, we, we pray that you will cause us to be hated for Christ. We pray that you would soften the hearts of our hearers as we testify the good news of Jesus Christ to the world who hates you, soften their hearts. Send your spirit ahead of us to soften their hearts and cause them to be born again. And those who are not, when they lash out at us, we pray that we would not be surprised, though we are in the moment surprised, because we know they hate you, and therefore they hate us. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause us to see Christ and grant us love, a greater love and communion and fellowship with him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.